Hello, welcome to Over Moro's Library, a podcast series for the Center of Contemporary Art in Geneva. My name is Federico Campagna, and if you would let me, I would like to be your librarian. But what does it mean to be a librarian? Well, it means many things, of course. It means building a community center where people can come in for a few hours apiece or to borrow a book. And it means creating an archive for the scholar where rare and ancient books can be preserved for future generations. Being a librarian can also be an attempt at reconstructing all those libraries that have been lost over the course of history. We still have lists of thousands of books from antiquity of which nothing is left but the title. But even those lists are libraries. And there are libraries that never existed, like those described by Borges and Umberto Eco. Their librarians see their job not so much as to provide books, but to hide them and withhold them from the public. But most importantly, being a librarian means operating a selection. Because with the exception of a story told by Borges, every library falls short of being complete. A library that contained all of the books in the world would cease to be a library. It would be just a very well-stocked warehouse. A library is always a selection, and it depends entirely on the needs, the taste, and the style of the people organizing it. This is especially clear with private libraries, like those that we have in our own home, or in our backpack, or in a Kindle. Each of them is unique, just like their librarian is a unique person. Because a librarian creates a library primarily for themselves. Especially when it comes to philosophy and literature, a librarian uses their collection not just as an archive, but as a tool that might help them resolve something urgent, an urgent problem for which they need to consult other voices from other times, people that might have lived through similar experiences. We can think, for example, about the library of Abi Warburg, the great German art historian and theorist of the past century. In the letters that Abi Warburg wrote to his brother, from whom he hoped to receive enough funding to buy all the books that he needed, Warburg described his library as a scholarly tool, the definitive archive for the researcher interested in the mysterious survival of the pagan gods from antiquity to the Renaissance. But when he finally managed to create his library, Warburg didn't quite treat his books as archival records. When he decided to arrange the bookshelves, for example, not in alphabetical or chronological order, but according to relationships of familiarity between different texts, to the rule of the good neighbor, he was treating his books as people, as comrades. They assisted him in his studies they confirmed his hypotheses about art and culture, but they also helped him in his struggle with manic depression and schizophrenia. Through his library, Warburg could remind, first of all, himself of how the ancients had managed to capture their demons within artistic figures. Warburg never became a great writer, but his library remains today as the one multi-volume book that he spent his life to write 
you can still see it in the Warburg Institute in London. So a library is an existential tool, but if we look carefully, we can see there is even more to it. Each library is also a unique hypothesis about reality. By selecting their books, a librarian implies a number of general things. What are the essential themes of reality? What is the nature of its populations? How best they can speak about themselves? If you look at a person's library, something that I believe we all do when we enter somebody's home, you can begin to deduce not only their interests, but also their hypothesis about the fundamental structure of reality and about the challenges that face each creature alive in the world. This series of podcasts, Over Morrow's Library, a library for the day after tomorrow, makes no exception to these general rules. The books and the authors that we will discuss in future episodes will sit alongside each other according to the rule of the good neighbor. Each of them can function as an existential tool and their general arrangement will set out a general hypothesis about reality and about the challenges of being alive today. So what is this general hypothesis that is implied in this series of post podcasts? Well, each hypothesis about reality depends on the perspective and the concerns of the person issuing it. So in the case of this library, it depends on the librarian. So please allow me to introduce myself, your aspiring librarian. My name is Federico and I'm a writer. I write on philosophy, mainly metaphysics, and I teach it mostly to artists and to designers. I also work in a publishing house that specializes in politics. The work on philosophy, that on culture and on politics, are for me very close. I don't see theoretical philosophy only as a specialist field, where, for example, scholars produce complex exegesis of classic texts, where sometimes they lose themselves in perfecting the grammar of the discipline. Philosophy is also this, but it is also a process that takes place in the back of our mind, of everybody's mind, at any moment in our life. Whenever we try to find some meaning, some ground, over which we can put the foundations of our plans for the future, of our imaginations and of our actions, first we have to operate philosophically. Philosophy sets the game board where the pieces of our life can move in a manner that makes sense. Sure, there are some people who specialize in philosophy, but the philosophical activity is the fundamental activity that each of us has to perform at any moment, or better, before every moment. So, also every cultural product, a book, a video game, or even an institution, depends on the philosophical ideas of its creators, how they thought their reality was fundamentally arranged, what kind of beings they believed to populate the world, what they imagined were the needs, and what they thought was possible to hope, to plan, or to imagine within their specific hallucination about reality. A hallucination that for each of them, as for each of us, counts as the world in which they live. 
This is because each world and the world itself is but a product of our imagination. And as such, it is unique for each of us. And it's extremely fragile. Like stories, worlds come into existence when a voice starts to recount them, and they disappear as soon as the narrating voice falls silent. The themes of world building, cosmogony and cosmology will be central to Overmorrow's library. And the reason for this focus has to do exactly with this fragility. The books and the authors that we will discuss in future episodes will deal each in their own way with the problem of how worlds come into existence, how they change or how they can be changed, how they die and what exists after or outside a world. But let's take another moment to look into this problem of worlds. Let's take one step back from the world to observe it more clearly. Hold up. Is it possible to step outside of the world? It certainly is. And to a certain extent, each of us already lives outside of the world. We are as if from the outside, looking in. This is because the world is just an order, a cosmos, the Greeks would say, which we impose over the avalanche of raw perceptions that invests us at any moment. When we wake up in the morning, for example, we are not already greeted by the world. When we look around ourselves in a room, in the room where you find yourself at the moment, we don't immediately perceive a series of objects neatly separate and arranged one next to the other. Our consciousness is first invested by chaos, an avalanche of raw perceptions coming all together at us, undivided, like an oceanic tide. And upon this tide, this avalanche, our mind imposes a grid that transforms it into an order, a cosmos, where it's possible for us to live. Meaningless chaos is inhabited only by the demons of anxiety. We cannot live there. We need a meaningful landscape around us however artificial and temporary it may be. And we have to reinvent it at every instant. So cosmogony, or world creation, is our most frequent activity. This order, the world, lasts just as long as we believe it, and then it goes back into chaos, until a new order is re-established by another voice. So each person lives in their own world, literally in a world of their own making. But when we wish to speak with each other and to connect with each other, we need to find some form of synchronicity. Synchronicity between our individual world narrations. At least for a while, or in some respects, we need to share or pretend to share the same hypothesis about the order of reality. And here, philosophy and culture finally meet. Through culture, we create a common metronome for worlding, an invisible clock made of ideas, 
concepts, words, and institutions that allows us to synchronize our world watches on a shared time zone. When there is a large enough number of people that synchronizes on this metronome and on the same cultural parameters, on the same reality settings, then historians say that a new civilization is created. But civilizations too are stories. They are a shared imagination that a group entertains about reality. They live as long as they are narrated and held as real or better held as if they were reality. Then they disappear. Civilizations end, worlds come to an end. The apocalypse is a real event and it's far from being a rare occurrence. Apocalypses have happened countless times in history. And if you think about it, you too have probably already experienced an apocalypse. For example, in the passage from the world of childhood to the metaphysically different world of adulthood. Apocalypse means revelation, the final moment when the truth about the world is revealed. But what is revealed? The apocalypse, after all, shows only one thing, that worlds are dreams of our own making. This doesn't make them any less real. After all, the world is the only reality that we can inhabit and navigate. But they are never set in stone. We can enter a world and we can change it, but we can also exit the world and yet we can still survive. The books and the authors that we shall discuss here in on Hover, Over Morrow's library deal precisely with this problem. They have been selected specifically to act as a therapy to a malaise that I, your librarian and fellow inhabitant of the civilization that we could call westernized modernity, that I feel are impending upon us. Soon, I don't know how soon, how long is the time that remains, the narration in which we live is going to unravel. The ideas that we have long entertained about reality, for example, the idea that matter is dead stuff, or that things like nationalities and financial tools are real entities, or that an identity is more important than the ineffable mystery of a single life. All these ideas are just as temporary and historical as the society that has produced them. And also our historical age will soon come to an end, and we will have to face the challenge of living through a collapse of reality and in a state where the world is no longer there for us to inhabit it, to live in it and to transform it. As it's happened already countless times, indeed since time immemorial, we will soon begin to feel, if we haven't already, that the future of our world is no longer a mobile horizon, but it has become an approaching wall. We will have to face the challenges of living through the apocalypse of a world, then of traversing the ocean of meaninglessness with no stable world in sight. And finally, the challenge of creating a new story about the world, a new structure of sense, a new reality system that will allow us to make a cosmos out of chaos. 
And we will also have to think about how we will be able to speak about ourselves today to the people that will inhabit the world that shall come the day after tomorrow. People whose culture and language will be so entirely different from ours, precisely because their hypothesis about the order of reality will not be the same as our own. How can we speak across the borders of different cosmologies? This is the problem and the hypothesis behind this series of podcasts. Over Moral's library is meant not only as an archive or a community center, but also as a diagnosis of the present moment and as a suggestion of a possible therapy to the symptoms of the age. Each of the following episodes will be dedicated to a book or to an author or to an entire literary movement that might contribute to creating this philosophical hypothesis and cosmological medicine. Sometimes we will look only at one specific text. Sometimes we will go through an entire shelf of good neighbors, books and authors that share a similar path and a similar adventure. We will move between books on esotericism and studies on video game design, between books on publishing and analysis of the Iliad, and literature for children and science fiction novels, studies on perennial philosophy, speculative design, mysticism, and so on. But first, in the next episode, we will look at the problem of the worlds and of world building through the lens of politics. The next episode will be dedicated to the Italian philosopher Franco Berardi Bifo, heterodox revolutionary and theorist of the psychic architectures of society. We will look at his theories on the relationship between the possibility of happiness and the speed of information, at his attacks against the cult of work, and at his latest studies on the unconscious. We will span from his next, as yet forthcoming book, The Third Unconscious, back to his first book, Contro il Lavoro, published in 1969 when Bifo was barely 20 years old. We will consider especially his thoughts on social imagination and on the eternal possibility of revolutionizing the very horizon of the possible. So please follow me to source the first ingredient of Overmorrow's Library, here from the Center of Contemporary Arts in Geneva.